0: In Arcadia Ego, and I am in Arcadia. That idyllic land where nymphs, satires and fauns could frolic. A lush pastoral landscape where sheep safely graze, but death lurks. Arcadia has taken many forms since first dreamt of by classical authors, notably Virgil. But this week, as we mark the halfway point of 60 Weeks, 60 Books... It is Tom Stoppard's 1993 play Arcadia that we will be exploring. Beware! Spoilers! The production opened at the National Theatre on April 13, 1993. At the time, I was spending my Easter holidays from Haywards Heath College in Beijing and Shanghai, visiting my then-boyfriend, now-husband, I interviewed with the British Council, he took me to the Great Wall, we picnicked at the Ming Tombs, and I lost my luggage on the way home. By the time I reached my flat in Brighton, there were no tickets available for the remaining months I was in England, and my focus in any case was on packing up my possessions, renting out my flat, and heading back to Beijing via the States. But I did manage to buy a copy of the script, published by Faber, and read it with wonder and delight. I loved Tom Stoppard. And since teaching drama and theatre studies after leaving China, my love has only deepened. My first exposure was when I was very young. My mother took me to see a production of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead when I was 11, as I think I mentioned. Probably one of those occasions when it was easier to haul me along rather than find a babysitter. I loved word tennis. I was crushed when the light suddenly fell. And the two young men, so baffled and battered by circumstance, and their unfortunate acquaintance with Hamlet, were snuffed out. A few years later, my father took me to see a number of Stoppard productions at the then relatively new and highly glamorous Kennedy Center in Washington, including The Real Inspector Hound, After Magritte, and most memorably, Every Good Boy Deserves Favour, with music written and conducted by Andre Previn. I was 14 and seeing the play was a political awakening. It was my first introduction to the idea that Soviet dis- dissidents could be imprisoned in psychiatric hospitals with a pressure put on them to declare that their opposition to the regime was a symptom of mental collapse. I read Jumpers and travesti- Travesties and then drifted away from Stoppard during my university years, He didn't feature on any of the courses, his plays did not make it to His Majesty's Theatre in Aberdeen, where I had free seats most weeks as the arts editor for the student magazine. Once back in London, when uh, when I was finally earning enough to afford theatre seats, I was too busy travelling, either for work or on holiday. But Arcadia was a huge event in theatrical terms, and 30 years since its first performance, it still reads and sounds certainly to me as fresh, vivid, funny and poignant as it did on my very first encounter with the play. I took a copy of the play to Beijing and soon after I arrived we had a dinner party with a reading of the play as entertainment. Although we were all reasonable readers, none of us were actors and yet the plot, the characters, all sprang to life. I chose to teach it at the very first opportunity when I was back in England and have revisited it regularly ever since. The original cast recording from the BBC is available in a bumper pack of 14 Stoppard productions from Audible. It was the first major role for Rufus Sewell, along with marvellous turns from Harriet Walter as Lady Croom, Felicity Kendall, Bill Nighy and fresh from his turn as Leonard Bast in Howard's End, a young Sam West. I finally managed to see it live in 2009, a terrific production with Ed Stoppard, Dan Stevens, Samantha Bond, Neil Pearson and Nancy Carroll. It was magnificent. The play seems complicated on the surface with dual timelines, the first in the early 19th century, the second in the present day, or at least the present of 1993. In the 19th century, we see the unfolding of relationships during a country house gathering first in April 1809, Then, three years later, at the heart of this section of the play is the initial friendship and then perhaps something more between Septimus Hodge, a young man in his twenties, and his student, Thomasina Coverley, daughter of Lady Croom, Dwayne of Sidley Park, a magnificent house in Derbyshire. Thomasina happens to be a mathematical genius. The second strand of time follows the fortunes of Hannah Jarvis, an author who has written a bestseller about the notorious Caroline Lamb, one of Byron's many paramours, and an expert in landscape and gardening. Valentine Coverley, the current heir to Sidley Park, is working on his doctorate in mathematics, and Bernard Nightingale visits an academic from Sussex University stoppard plays with parallels and echoes between the past and the present septimus and bernard both have written negative reviews of books which get them into pretty bad trouble both lady Croom and hannah are older women much admired by younger men septimus and valentine respectively and both thomasina and her young descendant valentine's younger sister chloe wonder whether they are the first to ever think of complex mathematical and scientific ideas The whole play is set in one large room at Sidley Park, where a long table collects manuscripts and artefacts from both timelines, including a tortoise. Much irony and comic tension are created by misinterpretations of events in both the past and the present day timelines. The heart of the play is the interplay between past and present, between scenes in the past exploring the making of the future whilst the modern-day scenes look at our attempts to interpret and reconstruct the past. Carefully, skillfully, Stoppard brings his two worlds together so that they interweave and blend in the final scene. As with all Stoppard plays, there is a strong current of fascination with scientific and philosophical ideas running through the play. It is erudite, elusive, witty and ludic, a word that I think is more comfortably delivered in French or Portuguese, but absolutely fits here. I had not known until I came to this reread that apparently Stoppard was highly influenced by reading James Gleick's book on chaos theory, which came out in 1987. He and I must have both read it around the same time. In the opening scene, Septimus has set Thomasina the challenge of solving Fermat's Last Theorem, a problem that was publicly declared solved in June 1993, a couple of months after the play debuted. It turned out that Andrew Wiles, the mathematician who had spent seven years researching and constructing the proof, had made a small error and needed a further two years to resolve this, with the final proof published in 1995 and thereafter accepted by mathematicians in full. Thomasina focuses instead on building a system of iterated algorithms that she believes will prove that nature is written in numbers. If Thomasina had been a real girl like Ada Lovelace, Byron's daughter, she would have changed the face of mathematics and our understanding of the workings of the world. Not only does she work out how to produce an iterated algorithm for an apple leaf, She also identifies the second law of thermodynamics, including the concept of entropy, around 20 years before it was actually begun to be described. But apart from being a fictional construct, spoiler alert, Stoppard also kills Tomasina off. We discover from a throwaway remark in the present day that she died in a fire on the eve of her 17th birthday. It is a hammer blow and colours everything that takes us to the final moment of the play where we see Thomasina in suspended animation waltzing with her tutor Septimus, who has come to recognise her genius, before heading up to her room where we know that she will be careless with a candle. Stoppard plays with his audience, unleashing epigrams and aphorisms, puns, innuendo and implications with dazzling wordplay and wonderful jokes, sometimes at a character's expense, sometimes in the cause of exploring the themes of time, loss, chance, design, feeling and intellect, appearance and reality. He is a writer who has been accused of too many linguistic pyrotechnics and insufficient depth in characterization but in Arcadia the characters are rich and complex, more than symbols or ciphers. There is an authenticity about the people and the world of this play, despite the glittering repartee and wonderfully timed comic exchanges. It is not simply that the idyll cannot be defended from death. At one point, Thomasina mourns the loss of knowledge following the destruction of the great library at Alexandria by Caesar. Septimus tries to console her, by suggesting that what has been lost can be found, directly or indirectly. He says, Life is very short, we die on the march, but there is nothing outside the march, so nothing can be lost to it. And though Thomasina's death is a terrible loss, her understanding of how heat cannot be exchanged, how energy released cannot be recaptured, just like jam stirred into a rice pudding – her attempt to demonstrate that all life is indeed underpinned by numbers are the foundations of concepts of entropy, of the way of our lives, as Valentine puts it, are a mélange of the unpredictable and the predetermined, and the future is disorder. Her new geometry of irregular forms is the foundation of what we now recognise as fractals, the application of iteration that allowed Mandelbrot to create his set whilst working at IBM. Meanwhile, the gardens at Sidley Park are undergoing their own transformations in both time settings. Hannah is writing a history of the gardens and digging trenches in search of the foundations of the original Italian garden, what she describes as the sublime geometry, a true paradise of reason and elegance. First dismantled by Capability Brown in the mid-18th century in an effort to create a sylvan pastoral landscape where the nymphs and satires of Poussin or Claude might have romped, and in the play further mangled by Lady Croom's landscape architect, whom she dubs Culpability Noakes. He seeks to impose on the garden untamed nature of a very manufactured and quite tame variety and so embodies the dwindling of the age of reason into the age of feeling of what somebody describes in the play as cheap thrills and false emotion. Hannah is trying to unravel the mystery of the identity of the hermit of Sidley Park For the sharper audience member, it is quite clear that the hermit is Septimus Hodge, who has spent 20 years living in the Sidley Park Hermitage, scribbling wildly on thousands of pages. The plot provides us with a pathway for Septimus, from the young tutor we see on stage, able with a growing awareness of the precocious gifts of his young charge, Thomasina, to the hairy hermit who is hoary as Job and meagre as a cabbage stalk. The hermit is more than simply a hermit. We discover that Septimus is unable to recover from Thomasina's death, that he is sheltered by the Croom family, and that he seeks to replicate and prove Thomasina's great theory. But even with time and paper, he is trapped by 19th century technology. And then in the 20th century, we have the technology the computer power to make the calculations that Thomasina began and that Septimus attempted to finish, take a matter of seconds to resolve. And all along we humans continue to be as petty, vain and foolish as ever as Bernard Nightingale embodies. Arcadia is an expensive play to stage, which is probably why it has not been revived much, and yet it is a wonderful piece of work that deserves widespread renown. Alongside the whizzy science and quickfire dialogue, There is deep humanity, compassion and joy. Next week, join me for a novel that is not so very well known, but is gripping and charming in equal measure. The beautiful A Gathering Light from 2003 by Jennifer Donnelly.